Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Derek, how you doing today, my friend? Yeah, well, there's a lot of stuff going on. I'm glad that we uh, had a good recording with Serena and Katie. I look forward to seeing where that goes and where those conversations go. But other than that, I'm just a little bit tired. Understand. But I'm always excited to talk about the scriptures, so I'm sure you'll get the real Derek back once we get started. <laughs> I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. Okay. Well, with that, let's go ahead and dive right into the Come Follow Me content. Uh, before we do, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So today we are going to be in Doctrine and Covenants uh, sections 10 and 11. And let's talk a little bit about the gift of translation because section 10 is about the missing 116 pages. We start out the section with an expression about the gift of translation. So Joseph was not only a prophet, seer, and revelator, but also a translator. We see this not only with the Book of Mormon, but also the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible and the Book of Abraham. In one very real way, the gift of translation was the single spark, or the single unique spark, that ignited the Restoration. This gift of translation was in many real ways the midwife of the birth of the restored church. Mm. Now why am I saying this? Two reasons. First. Translation symbolizes access, inclusion, and relevance. Translation expands the range of people who have access to something. Translation is also a way of people with access bridging the gap with people without access. And also, translation is a way of fostering relevance. And secondly, translation is a gift that is essential for adapting our language to new situations. I suspect that we need to think of LGBTQ advocacy more along the lines of a translation activity rather than a military activity. For example, all we need to do is translate the phrase male and female whenever it appears into language that LGBT people can get. Another alternative to eliminating the proclamation on the family is to accurately translate it and assume that when it says male and female, it means people of any genders. Hmm. I think that's a fair translation. I mean, that's what it means, right? Yeah. And when you get down to it. Right. Um, it's meant to LGBT be inclusive. folks. Yeah. LGBT folks are used to this type of translating all the time. Like when we hear one pronoun and have to translate it into another. Right. And when the proclamation says that gender is eternal, it should be accurately translated to say that at any time, the gender that a child of God knows themselves to be is of eternal worth and value. In these ways, language that can only be heard by straight and cis people now can be heard by everybody. By the way, the command to translate is inherent in the command to liken the scriptures unto yourselves. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Isn't that cool? Never looked at it that way. That's... uh. Yes, thank you for bringing that to our attention. There's a lot about access, and we see throughout the Doctrine and Covenants an expanding circle of inclusion and access, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. About to say, like, I did notice about, in this verse, like, both in this section and the oh, next yeah. section, there was 
several allusions to access or at least being able to make sure that everybody who either has desires to serve or everybody who wants to participate has access to do so. So yeah, what do you have to say about verse 4 here? I mean, we, we quote this verse a lot in the LDS Church for various reasons. I, I, I did want to focus on the kind of mental health piece. There's a, there's a tendency for people that when they come to an awareness of things that they need to change in their lives, and I see this after every general conference or after every big, I don't know, youth event or statement in the church, you know, I see people that are inspired by what they can do to improve their lives for the better, and then I see them kind of overdo it. I don't know if you've experienced this in your short five years in the church, but I, I know mm-hmm. I see this all the time, especially after general conference. I, I've seen it with people that resolve to get in shape. I've also seen it with people in therapy, and I've seen it with people who are in this fight for social justice. For, for myself, I've been told that I don't exactly have a cheery demeanor, and I thought for a long time that it was because of my frustration with the state of our country or the state of our church in terms of how they treat black, black folks, among many other injustices in the country and in the church. But that's a little difficult to square with the fact that there are other people, you know, people like you, Derek, who are just as bothered, if not more so, by these injustices. And they are significantly more pleasant to be around than I am. And uh, Except when I tell jokes. <laughs> then I'm not pleasant to be around. Yeah. Um, but, like, I found, as I've analyzed my personal response to these things, I found that it's not simply my frustration with where things are that frustrates me and has me down, but it's primarily my insistence that I must and can be doing more, but usually more than I have the energy or the ability to do. I'm not going to say that's that way for everybody, but I know that a lot of people are going to be able to relate to that. This is the real thing that frustrates me. It's the lack of patience that I have with myself because I I perceive myself to be so far behind, especially when I see the needs of the country, the church, or when I compare myself uh, to the likes of other heroes of mine who have written books on the stuff that I'm studying right now when they were still in their 20s. You know, while I'm sure that the Lord respects my diligence, like I'm sure it's commended. I, I think that trying to do more than I'm capable of will always result in frustration and perhaps an inability to enjoy my life, among other things. It's also worth noting here in this verse that the Lord didn't say that you don't have to do this, but rather do not do this. He said he didn't just he didn't say you don't have to run faster than you have strength. He said don't run faster than you have strength. Don't do it. I feel like the Lord right. anticipated a natural desire of Joseph and Oliver's anxiety to make up for lost work by perhaps overexerting themselves. I know that uh, I can only imagine that when Joseph Smith lost 116 pages, he was probably anxious to do whatever he could to, you know, make up for lost time and make sure he was right in the eyes of God. I know that if it were me, I would do everything. I Like, I wouldn't eat. I wouldn't sleep. Like, I would probably begin translating as soon as I got the gift back and I wouldn't blink unless I absolutely had to. That's how that's how I would make penance in my mind. I feel like the Lord is at least partially speaking to mental health to to a mental health need here 
Because when people do too much, their quality of life goes down, the quality of their work goes down. Think about the times you've been overworked. You probably got less sleep. You were probably eating worse. And there was definitely not time to exercise, which for many people means your energy levels are compromised. And consequently, so is the quality and quantity of the work you can do. You also tend to be cranky, anxious, and stressed like me when you got all that nonsense going on. And then there's less room for gratitude in your life, which not coincidentally is very healing and energizing. Uh, back in October, I, I got a prompting that basically said, get ready because you will not have the time you have now in a year. And I knew that the Lord meant grad school and... Uh, the Lord was basically letting me know that the next several months were going to be the last I had uh, to have complete control of my own theological education, and I needed to get more of it. So I've been doing as much learning and reading as I could in that time. At the same time, I've been very anxious about how much knowledge I don't have, and that's exposed every time I prepare for and record an episode of this podcast, every time I learn of new resources or sources brought to light by whatever I'm reading, or anytime I consume any kind of educational media. I'm very self-conscious about my ability to express myself, my ability to learn uh, about my intelligence, what I perceive to be a below-average theological imagination. And though I know school is going to nurture that, oh, by the way, it is official. I got my first acceptance letter a couple of weeks back. Uh, yay me. But yeah, I'm so proud of you. Yes, I'm thank you. I'm glad that I was part of that journey. You were part of that journey. You were so you were part of it in more ways than you know the ones I've asked you to be. But uh, even though school is going to help, I'm trying to do perhaps more than I'm actually capable of doing in preparation for that. Especially in the era of Mamba mentality, I, I feel like it's very important that people realize that uh, you know to do the work that they are called to do. It should not cost them their health. Yeah, I want to say something that may be empowering not just to you, but to some of our listeners. And it has to do with when you mentioned that you may not have the right or enough theological imagination. And the first thing is, like, wherever you are on your journey is where you are, and and you can't run faster than that. Right. But if you want to sort of increase your capacity and resources, there is the... Um, what I'd like to remind people is it's not, and here's the funny, the fun thing about the restored gospel is it doesn't celebrate the learned. It says that even unlearned people, I'm not saying that you're unlearned, but <laughs> I'm saying that I people am. who aren't, I'm not, people who aren't specialized in an academic study of the, of the scriptures, that's what I mean by right. learned. People who don't have access to that can still absolutely have a valid approach to the, the scriptures, and it's just as valid as mine. And where that's going is, so much of the power that I bring to the scriptures comes from looking at it through the lens of my own experience and my own context and what I know and, and what I've struggled and what I've experienced, and then using that to ask questions of the text. My big secret is that I just bring myself, my full self to the scriptures unabashedly and then that's what allows me to see things in the text that are really there that people might not otherwise see. Right. And the other secret is trying to go back and look at the historical context, which that does take some, some work and some training in many cases. And we talk in biblical studies about the three worlds. There's the world behind the text, the world of the text, and the world in front of the text. The world behind of the text is sort of the cultural and historical background that illumines 
some of the things in the scriptures. The world of the text is really the world set up and constituted within the text, like the world of plot and character, what's going on in that world in the text. And then the world in front of the text is us, right? We're standing there in front of the scriptures and we bring that world into it. And so just seeing all these, oh, you know what? That reminds me of Rabbi B'nai Lappi and she talks about donkey stories. Donkey stories, you said? Yes, donkey stories. Can you say a little bit more about that just to put our listeners on? Yes, so she talks about what would happen if donkeys read Torah. And if donkeys read Torah, every time that a donkey showed up in the text, they would notice. They would like, yes, there's me. They would jump up and down and say, look, there's a donkey in the Torah. Look, there's donkey there. So there's so many parts of the Torah that don't have donkeys in them. But the ones that do, they will notice and it will have significance to them. And I think her point is for queer people, when we look at these scriptures, we find our donkey stories. Like, where do we resonate and where do we find people who don't fit in in the scriptures? And we notice the stuff that's been there all along, but people were not in a position to discern. And I want to go back to this um, verse 4 and connect it more with very relevant, you know, very relevant to what I just said, is connecting it to my experience as a queer person. And this text resonates very much with Mosiah 4.27, which we've quoted all the time, as you say. Mm. And in the true gospel, LGBT people and others on the margins are not expected to do something they cannot do, and they're not expected to be something they cannot be. It's Mm. just not done in the Lord's gospel. For it is not requisite that a person should run faster than that person has strength, King Benjamin said. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this includes things like being forced to pretend to be a gender that you know you are not, Mm -hmm. or being forced to be celibate, or forced to marry someone that you're not compatible with. Mm -hmm. These are not required in the gospel, and God will find another way. Section 10 is all about finding another way, especially when the world puts up obstacles. Big time. Big time. And here's a sort of the flip end of this. This might be a little bit uncomfortable to have to admit, but let's talk about some hope that's implied in this for change in the church leaders. When we are tempted to wish that our church leaders should go faster, which they should, like I'm, we all know they should go faster. Mm-hmm. I want them to go faster, and they should go faster. Have a right to be impatient. And this text says that they can't run faster than they can run which is kind of disappointing, but the hope in that is that their capacity to run can be increased by the provision of more strength and more resources. That's right there in the text. Let me just look at the text. It says, do not run faster or labor more than you have strength and means provided to enable you to translate. So that's the big fudge factor here is you can change the means and the resources and the strength. And and it's important for those of us who are free and willing to impart more strength and more resources to our church leaders so that they can run faster. But I do not think that this burden of educating or supporting or strengthening the leaders is something that can be expected of people on the margins. Yeah. Which brings me to something I wanted to... I was reminded in our conversation with uh, Katie and Serena there's going to be times where like with Serena spoke about uh, 
what she called revolving faith crises, where people are not always in a position where they find themselves or rather they're not, they don't always feel like they're in a position where they can go to church or participate in the way that we are being asked to because our needs aren't really being met there. In fact, church can sometimes be a hostile place, a place that's hostile toward our identities to the point where we don't feel like we can be there. And uh, Blair Osler had a brilliant post this past, uh, you know, in the past oh, couple yeah, of days. Oh yeah, it was so good. It was beautiful. Um, but I just really liked how she named that the temple and our churches are just not a, not safe places for her. That doesn't make her any less uh, Mormon. It just means that, I mean, just to trans, transpose that to what we're discussing right now, to try to go to the church, to try to go to the temple right now would to be would be to run faster than they have strength, and uh, I just want to make sure that people that we name that there's space for Mormons who just cannot put themselves in that space right now because I don't I personally do not believe that the Lord wants us to be put ourselves in a space that's hostile because you know for the sake of stringent legalism or for the sake of obeying. A religious law when ultimately the end of our religion and the foundation of it is like the fu- the fundamental aspect of our Christian ethic is, you know, compassion, love for God and love for others. And if we can't accomplish that or if we're not feeling that when we go to church, or when we go to the temple, then I feel like it's very valid for us to remove ourselves from that uh, place for the sake of our own ethic and for the sake of our own mental health and for the sake of our own strength. There are a lot of liberating things in the text if we just look look at them. Absolutely. And I'm really glad you brought up that whole uh, according to the means that they got thing because that's super empowering for us. Because like, while I do want to extend grace to the leaders who are, you know, for the position that they're in, doing the best they can with what they got, it's also encouraging to know that, uh, you know, one of the blessings of our activity is that we can provide the means by which they may obtain the strength, may obtain the knowledge, and, you know, that way they may get to a point where eventually they'll be able to receive an answer to their prayers about people on the margins that actually affirms people on the margins. And speaking of empowering, I want to move on to verse 9 here. It says, Therefore you have delivered them up, meaning the uh, manuscript pages, you have delivered them up, yea, that which was sacred unto wickedness. Mm. Let's talk about this. Okay. The online world is a mess. Maybe it is a good thing that I'm having computer problems and I'm going <laughs> to not be online so much. <laughs> Maybe the Lord did that to me. So I'm having trouble. My laptop isn't turning on correctly. I'm not sure exactly what's wrong with it, but we'll see. Now, as part of the online world, people who are not re- ready to learn demand that I teach them, which is well, sometimes I like teaching, right? I love teaching, but sometimes people aren't ready. Right. And these people expect me to cater to their needs for free education when Google is already free. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Say it. This commandment enumeration project is getting to me because I'm finding all these commandments that I don't like. And I'm not talking about the ones that other people might not like. I'm talking about the ones that I really need to come to Jesus about. And one of these is the significance of Matthew 7, 6, which is a direct commandment not to cast our pearls before swine. Mm. But this is how commandments bless us. They protect us and they keep us from sticking my 
energy into some place where it won't be appreciated. Mm. There are times when I'm tempted to impart a truth that is sacred unto me to someone else, but then this commandment stops my mouth. I just have to say to the other person, well, I'd love to tell you, I really would, because I love teaching, I'd love to tell you, but I'm covenantally obligated not to make a truth that is sacred to me vulnerable to your unreadiness. And when I say this to them, I actually have said this to people online, and they never have a good comeback. <laughs> Let's move on to, to verse 15. 15 it says, okay. For behold, he has put it into their hearts to get thee to tempt the Lord thy God in asking to translate it over again. And the context here is Joseph must have been tempted to want to fix the problem by retranslating this same uh, same book of Lehi again. And that's what the adversaries of Joseph were trying to do. But here the Lord instructs Joseph to opt out of the challenge. Joseph was to opt out of their game. And that is something that we on the margins have to not fall into ourselves. We will be tempted to play by their rules, and this we should not do. We should cut the Gordian knot. In many ways, Crash Theory's option three is cutting the Gordian knot, because we refuse to play by the same ground rules that the option one and option two people both agree on. Have you noticed that option one people and option two people really have the same rules? They're just on different, different ends of the sides spectrum. of the, you know, they're on different teams, but they're playing the same game. Mm -hmm. And I'm not playing that game. And in this case, we can see that in Joseph's situation, we can see that option one would be to retranslate the book of Lehi and pretend there was no crash. Option two would have been to give up completely on the project and crush the emerging restoration. But here's where the brilliant thing comes in, and this is the divinely appointed solution. It's an option three move, where you admit the crash and then tell the story differently. And this ended up as retranslating, or not retranslating, but translating instead from the plates of Nephi instead of retranslating the, books, uh, the book of Lehi. Mm. Aren't we attempted on the margins all the time to, to make our sacred things vulnerable to the worthlessness of other people's unreadiness? Oh, absolutely. And I've caught myself yeah. doing this many times myself. Um, you know, I say, and I know that we've said on this show and in our own private conversations that our humanity as marginalized people is not a subject for debate. Like the second we have to... The second we have to debate our humanity, we are in essence legitimizing the other side of the argument, which is that people on the margins aren't fully human. Option three in our case would be simply to not play that game and uh, simply tell our own stories. And whether or not people want to accept that or whether or not people want to recognize us as the best sources of our own experience will be up to them. And, you know, I've seen myself do this online as well. When somebody says something really ignorant, I will mm -hmm. sometimes attempt to educate them or at the very least just make them look dumb. And <laughs> I mean, that's ultimately right. a fruitless thing. And uh, we don't need to subject ourselves to that. We don't need to cast pearls be before swine because if they're not going to appreciate those truths, then at most, at most, all we're doing is feeding our own pride, and that's 
you know, that's mm-hmm. not great. And that's what I loved about Blair Ostler is she refuses to play the game that's set up against her. Most people would ask themselves, am I worthy of, of church? Am I worthy to go to the temple? But she reframes it and says, well, is church worthy of me? Is the temple worthy of me? Mm-hmm. And at this point, it's not. The church and the temple are not worthy of Blair Ostler at this time. Mm. It, by opting out of the entire framework, you can successfully navigate some of these things. Mm-hmm. And, and speaking of that, let's talk. I want to hear what you had to say about section uh, verse twenty-eight. This is kind of loosely related to what we just spoke about, but uh, I gasped a little bit when I read verse twenty-eight. I'll just read it here. It says, "Woe be unto him that lieth to deceive, because he supposeth that another." life to deceive for such are not exempt from the justice of God. Now I guessed because this is such a common thing to what I see in anti-racist work or, you know, any kind of work that fights uh, bigotry. The Lord is using these words to describe the folks who stole the 116 pages because apparently their plan was to alter the translation. So it wouldn't match the new one. If Joseph Smith did in fact Go back to retranslating the book of Lehi. This goes back to the problem of casting pearls before swine. Like Joseph Smith very well could have translated uh, the book of Lehi again. But even if he did, the people who would now see the validity that Joseph Smith had as a prophet of God would just seek to invalidate him. Like their problem wasn't that they thought Joseph Smith was a liar. Their problem was that he was, you know... They just wanted to discredit him. Like that was their that was their real problem. That was their mm-hmm. real beef with him. Joseph Smith was more important or more significant to their human history than they ever were going to be. And they wanted to do whatever they could to delegitimize that. So this wasn't about proving Joseph Smith was a prophet to them. This was about just looking for a reason to destroy him. One of the worst things that white folks do to me when I share my experience with racism is accuse me of lying about it or overreacting or being too sensitive or not interpreting it properly. Or they'll insist in some way that they understand what I experience better than I do. Like the whole reason they do this is because of the discomfort my truth causes them about the world they live in and are complicit in maintaining. Like if I'm right about racism then they have to fundamentally alter the way they look at and behave in a world that they believe to be just and fair. And that's not a comfortable thing for white folks, racist white folks. My experience needs to be negated in order for them to return to their, uh, to their equilibrium that doesn't require them to change their thinking or behavior. Mm -hmm. So rather than trust Mm -hmm. that my experiences are real or that the work that I do is valid, they exercise a tremendous amount of effort to show why I'm wrong about my experience and the work that I do is unnecessary or even counterproductive, as you know, some people have said. Um, Further, what the Lord is describing here is how white supremacy came into being and is perpetuated. You got to tell lies about who people are in order to justify poor treatment of them. White supremacy started and is perpetuated on the lie that black people are lying about their humanity. And according to the Lord, such are not exempt from the justice of God, as it says in this verse. Same goes for any other movement. When we claim to know the gay experience or the trans experience or the female experience, the disabled experience, 
you know, better than the people that actually experienced those things. We are engaging in the same type of behavior that those who supposedly stole the 116 pages were planning to engage in. We accuse them of lying about their lives. So we need to lie to ourselves about who we are. Like, that's why we do it. We who do not exercise compassion toward our marginalized siblings, we can't believe in our own righteousness and goodness unless we also believe that the marginalized are not fully human. You speak often about how all homophobia is autobiography. I'm going to take, like, I'm going to say something a little different. I'm going to say all bigotry is self-deception. That it's it's lying Ooh, about yeah. others so that you can lie to yourself. And the scriptures have plenty of things to say about self-deception, but I won't get into all those now. But yeah, all homophobia is autobiography. All bigotry is self-deception because you got to lie to others or you got to lie about others so that you can lie to yourself about who you are, about your own goodness and your own righteousness. Yeah, and it's tough because when you when you see it for what it is, they're not only denying the humanity in someone else, but they're denying the humanity in themselves yep. because you have yep. to end up twisting your own soul to be so inhumane mm-hmm. to someone else. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that, oh, it's hurting everyone. It's like, all this isn't all lives matter, right? This is, yes, it hurts both, and it hurts both very differently and to different degrees and to different respects, but it's not like in the end, people benefit from evil, at least in the end. Right. And I really loved how you got into, and I, it's also in verse 25, There's there's something it says, and he, meaning Satan, he flattereth them. And I looked up flatter in the um, Webster's 1828 Dictionary of American English. And he, a Webster says that it also can mean to encourage. Mm. And so, um, or to give false hopes to. Not just to say pleasing things about, but to encourage or give false hopes. And so basically, he tells them that it is no sin to lie, that they may catch a man in a lie that they may destroy him. I find that's very interesting because mm. that's a sense in which verse 26 says that he causes them to catch themselves in their own snare. And mm-hmm. I think a lot about this in terms of nonviolence and you and I have different angles and different experiences on this. But for me, to use violence to defeat violence, if you try that, you you actually don't defeat violence. And I think that's the thing, like lying in order to defeat what you think is a lie doesn't get anyone ahead. You've still got lying in the world. And I wanna talk a little bit about this, what was the intention behind them? Oh, cause I, I bet this is one of the things that really bugs you about white people is, oh, I didn't intend to hurt you or oh. I had good intentions or I'm a good person. But one of the most important lessons that I think we can derive from section 10 is information about how Satan works. That's one of the beauties and blessings that we have of uh, the scriptures is knowing how Satan works. And I, I want to back up and, and just say for people who may not be aware that historic liberal theology, and I mean this in, in the sense of late, the late 1800s, early 1900s, pre-World War II, historic liberal theology, and I don't mean that in a bad way, right? That's what it was called. Historic liberal, historic liberal theology really downplayed the concept of Satan and the concept of evil and said, basically, we're all pretty good and there's progress. And that's one big difference between liberal theology and liberation theology. Liberation theology fully acknowledges the profound reality of Satan and of evil because there's no luxury of ignoring it. 
And let's talk about how Satan works. Satan works by exploiting people's good intentions. He gets them to seek a lesser good. This is very clear in the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, where all of the things that Satan was suggesting that Jesus latch onto were kind of good things, like food and and influence and power and um, and uh, the revelation that, that he's the Lord's chosen one. That's the whole thing about throw yourself from the temple piece is, is God would swoop in and reveal that Jesus is the Lord's anointed. But anyway, so we see this also here with Joseph's adversaries and their attempt at, to discredit something that they assumed was a lie, which in theory is a good intention to try to discredit lies. However, a lot of anti-LGBT nonsense is rooted in in what people think are good intentions of what they're doing. They want to defeat LGBT truths that they assume are lies. Mm. But once you get to know us up close, it becomes impossible to believe all those awful assumptions about us. And speaking of inclusivity, I want to mention verse 51. It says, Yea, that it might be free unto all of whatsoever nation, kindred, tongue, or people they may be. Mm. And here's another text that is boldly anti-racist. The ripples of inclusion that are created by the stone of the restoration being thrown into the ocean of the world are ever expanding. Mm. The restoration reached one person at first, and then a small circle of people, and then these waves of inclusion are now lapping at the shores of every country in the world. There is no excuse for the exclusion of any peoples in the restored gospel. Ever since we've started reading the Doctrine and Covenants, it seems that there's been something in at least each Come Follow Me lesson that af- that affirms the value of all people, regardless of where they come from, regardless of you know these qualifiers that we have in here, nation, kindred, and tongues, or just how simple the requirements are in order to receive the gospel or to be saved. I mean, it says in verse 50, whosoever should believe in this gospel in this land might have eternal life. And then later we read something uh, similar in uh, verse 11, where we're basically told, let me see if I can't find it. 27, I speak unto all who have good desires. And the beginning of section four, if you have desire to serve God, you are called to the work. He's not putting a ton of qualifiers on what it takes to be saved, on what it takes to serve, or what it takes to, you know, receive the gospel. And I just think that's really beautiful in terms of, you know, anti-racism, accessibility, and just, you know, combating bigotry of all types. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that out. And in terms of these exp- ever-expanding ripples of inclusion, it's got to start somewhere, but those circles keep expanding mm-hmm. and flowing through the entire surface of the water. Mm-hmm. And here's another example of that. In verse 59, we have the Lord saying, I am he who said. Isn't that a bold? I just was thinking about that's a That's a fun way of, of announcing something. I am he who said. Yes. Right. I am the same one who said this. 2,000 years ago, I am he who said, other sheep have I, which are not of this fold. Right. And important to note that in the context of what he just said here, like anytime Jesus says or like declares who he is and he does it in a different way, I'm always looking at what he just said prior or what he's about to say because he's saying this for a reason, you know? 
like he's declaring i am the i am the christ who said other sheep i have which are not of this fold like that has relevance considering what he just said in these previous 10 verses we as latter-day saints are not a people that says we are the only ones that matter we're the only sheep right we are a people who says the lord has other sheep that we don't know about and they are included too mm-hmm there was this time that some friends were about to make a new LGBT ministry for Latter-day Saints, and they were thinking, what should we name it? And I thought about this, and I thought about the name Other Sheep, mm-hmm. right? Because I'd love to have something that has a scriptural name in it, because how can you just disparage something when it's in the scriptures? And I was thinking about creating my own LGBTQ ministry called Other Sheep. Because Jesus said, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. This is in John 10, verse 16. Mm -hmm. And I think about that when I hear this phrase, oh, people love to say it, everyone is welcome. I'm sure you've heard this all the time. (laughs) Everyone is welcome. Yeah. But you know, that is what people halfway down the riddle scale of homophobia love to say. Mm -hmm. So the acceptance piece is only halfway up the scale, right? You've got a long way to go. Mm -hmm. And there's a big difference between everyone is welcome and this is designed with you in mind. We talked a little bit about this with Serena and Katie. And we see this not just with LGBTs, but with people of color and for people with disabilities, they get told, you are welcome here, but you have to love like we do, think like mm-hmm. we do, access the world like we do, mm-hmm. and so on, or worship like we do, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But on the contrary, when the master shepherd designs the sheepfold, it's designed with these sheep in mind. Right, right. I wanted to say something about verse 67. Maybe I can condense my thoughts on this, and it has to do with this bold definition of the word church. Okay. It says, Behold, this is my doctrine. Whosoever repenteth and cometh unto me, the same is my church. Now, I'm a convert, right? And converts have this window into anything that Mormons that do is funny. We, it sticks out to us converts. And I'm in the position to notice something quite intriguing. Members of the church use the word church in a really unnatural way. They use the word church to mean the business end of an institution in Salt Lake City. Right. And that is nonsense. That's not scriptural. The church is all of us. People will say, I hear members say this all the time, the church said, or the church teaches, or what is the church's position on this? The church, the church, the church. And all they mean is, what did some committee of mid-level bureaucrats in an office building put out? Right? Did they put out some statement or some manual or some handbook or something? That's what they mean by church, and that is so small and limiting and unimaginative and mm-hmm. and unscriptural. Mm-hmm. When you look at our rich scriptural tradition in the Bible and the Book of Mormon and here in the DNC, the church is not about manuals or handbooks or anything that came from anyone employed by an institution. It's about the Spirit of God like a fire burning wildly through the hearts and minds of a people so captivated by the love of God that they can work miracles and be a springboard 
from which they can infuse God's love and light into the rest of the world. Mm. That's not bureaucracy, right? Mm. There's no manual or handbook or statement for a power like that. Right. So these business elements are not the church. I don't want to hear anyone say the church, right? Get these words, the church said, or the church teaches, or the church is whatever. Get those words out of your mouth. Unless it is approved by the common consent of the body of the church in a sustaining vote, the church didn't say anything. Mm -hmm. The church didn't do anything. That's not the church. We are the church. We are the church. Yes, sir. Church leaders. I would love for them to just say, instead of saying the church said, they can say church leaders said, right? Mm -hmm. Because that specifies exactly what's going on. And church leaders, no matter how much they talk or how much they get treated like celebrities, they are not the Lord of this church or the body of this church. Mm -hmm. Christ is the Lord and the Latter-day Saints are the body. This is why the divinely real, revealed name of the church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, thank you for sharing that and offering that clarification. We've, we've mm-hmm. inched around that before, but I'm glad you like said it so directly as we've had yet another conversation on what it is to be a church community. I don't even think we went over this when we actually had the discussion on the body of Christ back in the New Testament uh, times a couple of years back. So this was uh, this was really nice. This was really refreshing. So uh, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. If I may, Derek, I want to uh, step back to verses 52 and 54 real quick. And I'd love okay, to- Okay, great. 52, according to their faith in their prayers, will I bring this part of my gospel to the knowledge of my people. Behold, I do not bring it to destroy that which they have received, but to build it up. Then he says it again, or something similar in verse 54. I do not say this to destroy my church, but I say this to build up my church. Now, this is in reference to the gospel. He's talking about this part of my gospel when he's talking about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, I believe, Mm -hmm. is what is being discussed here. I had to ask myself a couple of questions. Uh, First of all, that one about what is the gospel exactly that the Lord feels he needs to clarify is not here to destroy that which we have received. And, you know, I assume it's the Book of Mormon, but like this could be translated to a couple other things. I don't know. But uh, for the purposes of the, you know, what we're discussing right now, I believe I'm pretty safe in assuming it's the Book of Mormon. But uh, secondly, as we discussed that, we also have to acknowledge that the Book of Mormon was certainly at that time, and even now, is a radical text. Uh, Mm -hmm. It reinforces our testimonies of Christ, but there is quite a bit of doctrine in there that clarifies our faith in Christ and might make mainstream Christians uncomfortable. And in addition to the doctrine, there's the timing of the record coming forth, uh, the fact that a record has come forth claiming to be another testament of of Jesus Christ. I, I don't know. What I do know is that when I introduced the Book of Mormon to people for the first time, especially during the course of my mission, uh, there was often a question for many of them about the relationship the Book of Mormon had to the Bible. Like, is it here to replace it? Is it here because the Bible isn't good enough? Uh, you know, and a couple of other questions. But the Lord is letting us know here that the purpose of the Book of Mormon is to build up the church, not to destroy it. It is here to build up the truth that we have received and not destroy them or take away from them. Build up, like, including the Bible. When, when I read these words, I immediately thought about other eternal truths that too often mm-hmm. need to be clarified as things that will build the church up rather than destroy it. And I think you know where I'm going with this, Derek. But, Black uh, Lives Matter. 
Thank you. Yes. Um, President Oaks affirming Black Lives Matter as an eternal truth at the BYU devotional back in October. That was a big deal. Like he said it to build up the church, not destroy it. Yet folks who didn't fully understand what the purpose of the gospel was thought that Oaks, they thought he was going apostate. Like that was almost comical to me to see people take such umbrage with an eternal truth as simple as Black Lives Matter to where they take one of the brethren who is very traditional and very orthodox, they think he is going apostate. There's people that still think that allowing LGBTQ folks authentic expression of their identities is going to somehow spell trouble for the church. But in reality, that's going to build us up. There's people who won't push for the ordination of women in the church. But I really feel like, especially in places where male activity is lower, I don't see how anything but female ordination will, or how female ordination would do anything but build us up. So, like, I feel like there's a lot of eternal truths that are still out there that we are not ready to receive because we view them in such a hostile manner. We view them... Mm-hmm. as such deviations from the norm that they must of necessity destroy the church when in reality they're actually going to build us up uh, i don't know if you got any other thoughts about that or what the lord may have meant yeah. when he said that i think that in these verses like 51 through 54 it's all about access again because what mm-hmm. satan was trying to do was limit access to god's word to limit access to the restoration to frustrate the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, to try to do anything at the last minute to uh, to cancel the Book of Mormon and make sure that it didn't get out there. And what we learn from this is that God wins. God was able to defeat Satan and establish access for people. But what I want to say is that what does this say about Satan? Satan does not like inclusion. He does not want there to be access to the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. So if anyone is against inclusion, they must be inspired by Satan. It's I hate satanic. to say it so boldly, right? <laughs> yes. But if Satan hates inclusion and hates the spread of the gospel and hates this ever-widening circle of inclusion that the gospel is intended to be, then that's the logical result about people who do not like inclusion. Right. I know you're gonna laugh, but I don't have much to say about section 11. Yeah, okay, I'm starting the clock right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One thing to note here in section 11, this is given to Hiram Smith, and Hiram Smith here, uh, Joseph's uh, brother, uh, his oldest living brother at the time, Hiram Smith is a fresh convert and that shapes our entire interpretation of section 11. There are a lot of new things coming out at this time. This is still 1829. It's a year before the publication of the Book of Mormon, almost a year. And there's there's a lot of new things up in the air. And this is the primary reason that the Lord urges Hiram towards patience and humility. Don't you just get frustrated when people use patience against our people? Oh, absolutely. Right? They're like, y'all so that's wait why on. you we have didn't... to. Yes, sorry. Exactly. Go ahead. That's why you have to unpack the context and see who was this written to and why and what position were they in and right. what position are we in. And mm-hmm. there are many mm-hmm. times where Jesus was not patient. Same mm-hmm. with Paul. Same with so many of the Hebrew prophets. They got really impatient sometimes. Anyway, 
And these admonitions to patience and humility can be easily twisted to make life harder for those of us on the margins. And that's what I want to unpack here. Mm -hmm. Let's look at DNC 11 verse 15. It says, Behold, I command that you need not suppose that you are called to preach until you are called. And boy, is this relevant here. One very real question here is to ask whether our church leaders, in fact, at this time, are called to teach about LGBT LGBT folks. Mm -hmm. Like Hiram, they are at the beginning of learning about the lives of LGBT people. There is more light and more knowledge unfolding even now, and there's more yet to unfold. Right. So that's why they're like Hiram here. This knowledge and light that they're waiting for is already dwelling among us in the margins. They just need to be open to it. And just like this text is telling Hiram that he needs more prayer, study, and instruction before he can do marvelous things, the same thing is true of our church leaders. Like Hiram, they need patience and humility They need to not get ahead of themselves and run faster than they have strength and declare the Lord's word before they even have the Lord's word, which I'm going to get to. Mm -hmm. But my point here is that we need to make sure that this text about patience is not used to afflict the afflicted. Yes, sir. Patience should not be used against oppressed people, but it should be expected of those in power. And I want to connect this with verse 21. It says, um, I want to hear what you have to say about this first. I may not have too much to say, but, uh, you know, just to read it real quick, seek not to declare my word, but first seek to obtain my word, and then shall your tongue be loosed. Then if you desire, you shall have my spirit and my word, yea, the power of God unto the convincing of men. As I read this, the thing that's uh, popped up in my mind is just how when I get into conversations about race with uh, white folks, It astounds me how they can have such strong opinions with so little information and just how much damage you can do by engaging in a conversation or trying to engage in anything that you do not have the adequate preparation or education to do. Now, when I first heard this verse, or at least found the most practical application to it, I was accustomed to being told, you know, to study the scriptures as much as I could, learn the history of the church as much as I could before I served a mission, so that when I when it came time for me to go out there and bear my testimony of the restoration of the gospel, I would be able to do so armed with all the knowledge that I would need. And I view it similarly now when it comes to conversations surrounding anti-racism and other kinds of uh, under kinds of, you know, struggles for social justice. I make an effort to know my stuff before I talk because there are consequences for not knowing your stuff. I just view this to be an eternal principle that before you try to talk about this stuff, it is very necessary to educate yourself before you participate. Otherwise, you can do damage to the cause or even worse. Well, I mean, damage to the cause is pretty bad. But you can also just do some violence to yourself as well by reinforcing opinions that are simply, you know, not correct or reinforcing ideas that are not true on your own person. Like this goes back to that whole self-deception conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is what I this is one thing that I've noticed in my conversations with white folks about racism is so many of them will double down on their own ignorance. They will double down on their very strong opinions but then they will also expose how little they know. 
And uh, obviously, this has huge implications from the gospel from a gospel standpoint. But you know, when I read this verse again, I couldn't help but think of it from a social justice standpoint, um, because there is a lot of danger in having such strong opinions or seeking to declare a word that you don't actually possess. Yeah, there's. I don't know if I've said it in these words before, but straight white men are socialized to think that every rumbling in their tummy is a gift to the world. <laughs> yeah. And one of my, they, okay, here's a pro tip. I love the phrase, are socialized to, mm-hmm. because that's how you can avoid stereotypes, that's how you can avoid generalizations, because you are not speaking about every individual, you are speaking about the climate which influences them. Right. I'm not saying all straight white men are bigoted and idiots and arrogant. But what I'm saying is that they all are socialized to think that their uh, their opinions are neutral, their opinions are valid without any evidence, that they have the um, sensible and rational approach and everyone else is somehow contextual. You know, that really bugs me about contextual theology. You people use the word contextual theology to talk about you know, black theology or queer theology or feminist or womanist theology, they talk about those contextual theology. Straight white male theology is contextual theology too. Okay? <laughs> Have you noticed that? How that we'll say, oh, you know, Paul Tillich was the theologian and then James James Cone was, was a, a black, black theologian. theologian. Yeah. yeah, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's why when I talk about people, I talk about how great a theologian you are. I don't say you're a great black theologian. I see you're a great theologian. You probably have never heard me say that because I would say it in front of you. <laughs> Do we know? But I tell people you're a great theologian, not just a, not just a great black theologian. But where was I going with this? Um, the audacity of of straight white men who are socialized to privilege their ideas, and this is what bugs me. I was this is the same guy who who said this Pharisee business to me, and like he's been consistently using the word Pharisees to criticize. Um, the LDS church leadership. Mm-hmm. And I told him, he says, well, you need to explain it to me and this is a debate and we need to present both sides and and like it's your job to, to prove me that I'm wrong. And here's the problem, is that there is a gap between uh, straight, white, able-bodied men and those on the margins. And whose job is it to cover that gap? I really think... <laughs> that it's the people who have the privilege should do the work to bridge that gap and not make the others bridge that gap. And I feel the same thing because I'm like you, I'm on both sides of these privileged boundaries, right? As a man, as a white person, I wanna do the work to bridge the gap and make sure that I get closer to where the people who already know the truth from their own lived experience who are experts on being black or being a woman, that's that's who should bridge the gap, right? And then on the other hand, like I want straight people to do the work to understand me rather than me work do the work to understand them. And I think that is so common here in our church leadership is that they, some of them are good. A lot of them are good and well-intentioned, right? Like we talked about these good intentions. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them assume that their position is the default and it's the logical and obvious thing and it takes a lot of work to show them where they're deficient. 
And the last thing I want to point out about DNC 11 is in verse 20. It says, Behold, this is your work. And this is still talking to Hiram. Behold, this is your work to keep my commandments, yea, with all your might, mind, and strength. And this text for me is nicely paired with Moses 1.39. And the Lord says, For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of humankind. So we've got this contrast between your work, which is to keep the commandments, and my work, the Lord says, to bring up pass um, our immortality and eternal life. Hmm. And I, I get that for some people, the word commandment is used to bully them and to deprive them of a sense of dignity and, uh, and autonomy or to coerce them into feelings of guilt or whatever. And that's all valid. And I have a different avenue into the church and a different way of navigating these things. And I like commandments. I wish we had more commandments. I love the commandments because every time I find a new commandment that I didn't know about, I get so excited. I'm like, this I can use to infuse another piece of my life, even if it's small, with more gospel power. And I know I'm saying a lot of things that sound like what correlated conference talks say, but I mean something very different by that. And I don't know if uh, I have time to explain that, but I, I hope people understand what I mean. Because there's real gospel power in using your covenantal obligation to mourn with those who mourn after per police brutality murders a large number of our black siblings, right? Mm -hmm. That is a commandment. And we need to take it seriously. And so the gospel and these commandments actually empower us to do more good in the world. And that's all I have to say about section 11. So I, like I said, I was kind of short on this. Less than 10 <laughs> minutes, I think. 13 minutes. Oh. Oops. Yeah. All good, though. We, I'm, I'm glad we got to talk that much about section 11. Very good stuff. And I got nothing to say about it. So let's go ahead and move on into the uh, housekeeping items. But before we do wanted to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That is dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Also, Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS, and also on Facebook. Yes, sir. Also, three weeks. We are three weeks away from the fourth annual Black LDS Legacy Conference. The theme for this conference is Black Lives Matter and Eternal Truth that all reasonable people can agree on. Since the event is virtual this year, it'll be very easy for all of you to attend who have not been able to attend with us in D.C. these past three years. I highly recommend it. Registration went live about a week ago, and we have already, quote-unquote, sold out of the first 350 tickets. So this is going to be a big event. Actually, we're over the 400s now, according to Dr. LaShawn. So... Highly recommend that you guys hop on that. Go to the Black LDS Legacy page on uh, Facebook. You can find a registration link there as well as 
the flyers and stuff that you can share to your own social media to encourage other people to also attend this lovely virtual event. Uh, just to give you an idea of what's going to be going on there, it looks like Jasmine of First Name Basis is going to be hosting a panel alongside uh, both Janique and Shantae of uh, Let's Talk Sis. They'll be there. It's seen Mali Bonner will be there. He'll also be talking about uh, the Green Flake movie. I'll also be speaking at this event. I'm giving one of the keynotes. I don't know which one I'm giving, but I'll be giving one of them. There'll be lots of other folks there as well, and uh, you'll be able to engage them directly. And I'm pretty sure every one of these talks and panels will feature a Q&A. So if you want to engage with any of these folks that are going to be present, highly encourage you to show up virtually and participate. Thank you guys very much for joining us this week. Till we meet again next week. All right, everyone. Bye and have a great beginning to your Black History Month. But we should have Black History every month. Booyaka. Thank you, Derek. Bye, everyone.